Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on a university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges that deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. Our guest today is John Byrne, founder and editor-in-chief of Poets and Quants, by far the largest journalistic outlet focusing on business education. John founded Poets and Quants in 2010 after having cut his teeth at traditional business journalistic outlets. He may be best known as the initial designer of the ranking scheme first used by Business Week in 1988 to rank business schools, an approach now mimicked in various forms throughout the world. Being involved in the rankings business for over 30 years has given John a tremendous vantage point with which to compare and contrast business schools. It's also given him unique insight into both the strategic threats and opportunities business schools face today. In this fast-moving interview, John provides insight into a vast array of strategic issues facing business higher education. This includes issues related to program design and delivery, integrating alumni, the local community, and students, the broader implications of high-quality undergraduate education more prevalent today, the emergence of one-year master's program, and a myriad of other fascinating observations. We hope you enjoy this episode. We're here today with John Byrne, the founder, editor-in-chief of Poets and Quants, founded in 2010. Gee, when I was looking to for a little background on the Poets and Quants, I realized that you know, you're the largest journalistic site covering business schools and business education in the world. And what really struck me is 10 times as many stories as the second leading publication of any sort. So remarkable in your coverage, you know, our senses, John, you know, certainly everyone we've interviewed knows, knows Poets and Quant and knows you. And it wouldn't surprise us if the majority of our audience listening knows a little something. So we're delighted to have you here. Really interested in hearing some of your insights about business education and really welcome this conversation. Well, thank you for having me. So I think, you know, I think our first conversation is really, our first question is just take us back and give us a little perspective on poets and quants and sort of how, how you came upon the idea, how you have emerged from, from concept to reality. Sure. Well, you know, you may or may not know that I have the dubious distinction of having created the first regularly published MBA ranking back at Business Week in 1988. So that started my interest in business education. And what that allowed me to do is to reach out to a lot of schools, not just, you know, the handful of schools that are commonly at the top and, and really get a sense for how the industry of business education actually operates. And out of, out of that experience, we did rankings on executive education, executive MBAs, the full-time MBA market, eventually the undergraduate business major. We did guidebooks on executive education and MBAs as well. And that really got me deep into the field. But then what happened is, you know, I, I went on and I did other things. And when it was coming time for me to decide 
do I want to actually create my own business? The first thing I turned to was business education. It made sense because even though I hadn't been covering it for many, many years, many of the characters in it remained stable and involved. It was something that I also felt I could get my arms around in a way where I could add true value and perspective. And so Hotsequence was sort of a natural outgrowth of my interest to finally start a business of my own and to do it in the field that I admired and that I knew something about. The other, the other inherent thing here is that I'm a true believer in higher education. I'm a first-gen college student. One parent, my father, finished high school. My mother didn't even finish grammar school. And I really think that higher education transformed me as an individual and opened my mind to life's possibilities. And I think without it, my life would have been dramatically different. So I'm a big believer in higher education, number one, but I'm especially a big believer in business education because of the obvious outcomes for people. It does transform lives. It does make a difference. And it's not just about the money and the position. It's about being able to live a more multidimensional life, a life that's more meaningful, a life that's more fulfilled. Uh, and while there are a lot of resources today that didn't exist for me when I was young, there's still a great number of people out there who aren't from families that are educated, who don't have the kind of dinner uh, table discussions that uh, a lot of people have in this country. And I wanted to create a place for them to go and explore these options that I believe are incredibly helpful and valuable to people. So that's that was really, you know, the personal motivation and then the professional motivations to build on what I had already done earlier in my career and to finally be an entrepreneur of my own. You know, I wish, I wish that talk right there, what you just said, could get amplified to so many families who are trying to figure out how and why to go, because you really just stated a case for business education that is as well stated as anything I've ever heard. I, I commend you for that, but you've been such a great student of this game just because of that. And I think it's terrific. And I, so I just to add on to that or to just take you one step further, how do you see the changes in business education since you've been really sitting on the sidelines? You know, you're the sportscaster that's calling the game and some succeeded and some didn't. And so how do you see the changes that have taken place and, and where do you see this thing going? And I know it's a very open-ended question, but I don't know anybody that knows better than you to be able to answer that question. So I'll throw that at you. <laughs> well, the first thing I want to do is, is defend the need for the education, because sadly, I think that that's a need. You know, there are people who over the years have questioned the value of the MBA in particular. And truth be told, you know, the world has not become simpler. The world does not accept people with fewer skills, less tools, and a diminished intellect to, to work with this world. If anything, it's more complex, it's more global, it's more interdependent, it's more focused on technology, it's more focused on collaboration and getting the best out of people. And if anything, all of those trends underline the need and the value 
of the MBA. There is a value proposition here. And to me, it's obvious. I think an MBA degree is a no brainer. Nonetheless, what we've discovered in the past decade, primarily, is the decline of the two-year residential MBA. Now, part of this has to do, I think, with undergraduate education in business becoming really good. Undergraduate programs are superb. They, they deliver incredible value. And to some degree, I think they have cannibalized the graduate degree in business. Second thing that's done some harm to the two-year residential MBA or the rise of specialty master's degrees that you can complete in one year. And if you know you want to work in finance and nothing else, maybe you get the master's in finance. If you know you want to do global supply chain management, you get that degree or you go for the degree in accounting. So the specialized degrees also have helped to somewhat cannibalize the MBA. And then the other thing that's happened is the development of the online market. And that was truly accelerated with the pandemic. It's gone well beyond just the MBA itself, but is now into many specialized degrees and more importantly, into the executive education field. But that option and the flexibility that it affords a lot of people uh, has led to explosive growth. There's way too many of these programs chasing, actually at this point, far too few students. Um, most of those programs are commoditized. I don't think they're of high quality, but there are a good number of schools with great brands doing a fantastic job in online education. And despite the decline of the two-year residential MBA, if you looked at the overall enrollment trends, you'd find that more people are studying for an MBA today than ever before, in part because of the online phenomenon. So I think that's good news, but I, but I still think that there's nothing like sitting in a classroom in front of a professor and your classmates bringing all this incredible experience to you for two years and, and having the benefit of an internship to try out a new career field that you may be, you may find yourself incredibly passionate about, or in fact, you may find that you definitely don't want to do that and you want to do something else. And of course, that internship is also essential to enter certain fields, largely consulting and finance to some degree, because employers increasingly want a tryout before offering someone a full-time job offer. So, you know, I, I, I lament the decline of the two-year MBA experience because I think it's incredibly valuable. And it's also valuable for people to take a little time off and give themselves after three to five years of work experience, a time to reflect and think and maturity to do so that makes that experience so much more valuable. So we are seeing the decline of that degree. And in particular, the decline in domestic applicants, which has occurred for about a decade outside the pan pandemic blip, which was an anomaly when applications went through the roof. Uh, I think some of that's occurring because of undergraduate debt and the perceived high price of the MBA, two-year MBA. People look at the price tag and they're not aware of the discounts that are occurring, the, the massive amounts of scholarship money, but they're making judgments based on how much undergraduate debt they still carry and also what that price tag looks like. And, and they're 
reluctance to get uh, further into debt. I think that's a major problem for the industry. I think that's a bigger problem than just the fact that employers are trying to hold on to their employees and giving them raises and increased job responsibilities to keep them from going to graduate school. I think it's that's that's even a bigger reason than the quality of undergraduate business education or the rise of the specialty master's degree. And it goes to the heart of the business model of the business school because the business model in many ways, I, I think of it as how it was for me at Business Week when I was executive editor and digital journalism was transforming the field. And we had these high cost structures with layers of editors and copy desks. And we had to trade analog dollars for digital dimes. So suddenly the economic model just fell right out from us. And much of all media really couldn't, couldn't change fast enough to make a difference. And in a way, the high cost of tenure track faculty, uh, the low teaching loads, um, the continued emphasis on research that only reaches very few people, um, the demand for ever larger and more beautiful facilities <laughs> and support staff uh, at business schools uh, is making that economic model untenable uh, for many schools. And that's particularly true for schools that don't have a full portfolio of programs from undergrad to executive education to five or six MBA programs to specialty masters. Yeah. The more limited your portfolio, the fewer level levers you have to pull to make a difference on this economic model. Yeah. Uh, so how, how have schools dealt with it? Uh, they've dealt with it the same way old media dealt with it, with little changes. Okay, we're going to increase the number of adjunct faculty. Okay, we're going to have more clinical professors who we don't have to pay as much. But those are, that's tweaking and not really rethinking the model. And it turns out, you know, digital education, which originally we thought was going to make higher education more affordable and more accessible and cheaper, it's, that really didn't turn out to be true. High quality digital education is an expensive proposition in and of itself. And there still is some allure to selectivity, high, higher selectivity in programs, which make even digital programs at the best school not as affordable or accessible as you would have thought. Right. And, not, and certainly not the cash cows that many people thought it was in the beginning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. J John, recognizing that you got your start sort of in the rankings world, and we would like to talk about sort of where where rankings are going. However, to follow your most recent point, sort of what are you seeing as the innovations, the new initiatives, uh, the ways of coping that some of the either unranked or, or those that don't have the full resources, what kind of innovations and creativities are you seeing from other institutions? I think most of it has to do with increased flexibility in online programming. So if you, ha if you have an evening MBA program or any kind of evening graduate program, or you have an executive MBA program, a weekend program, having the flexibility for students to choose among the different formats, I think is a real important innovation. 
because there will come a time when a student may may be able to do the Tuesday Thursday grind uh, during the night or the weekend thing every other weekend but there will also come a time when maybe they can't because of personal or professional demands and they would be likely to want to switch to an online format that flexibility across different um programming formats i think is an innovation that's important I think another innovation that's going on at business schools is, you know, historically business schools have been isolated schools on university campuses. They've often been on the periphery of the campus. They've been very, there's been very little connection between and among the departments and schools. And one of the biggest trends I see, one of the most innovative trends is opening up the business school to the overall university and the overall university opening up to the business school. So you see much more uh, interdisciplinary work. You see a lot more collaboration among and between the schools. This has happened greatly in the areas of sustainability and now in healthcare. The business of health is probably the single greatest opportunity for business education in this era right now. So is sustainability. These are two incredibly hot fields, as you know, you know, Healthcare is 20% of the GDP, and the other 80% are concerned about healthcare because of the cost and the accessibility of healthcare. So, and it's an industry that's been slow to professionalize, and it's an industry that is ripe for disruption. And there are all kinds of med tech startups and biotech startups. This is an area I think that will become as important, if not even more important, than the area of technology as we defined it, right? Most MBAs go into consulting, finance, and technology, and then it used to be consumer products, and then it would splinter to manufacturing, media, and communications, and all the other areas. I think healthcare and the business of health, more broadly defined, will be the most important area for for business graduates over the next 20 years after consulting and finance, and could even ultimately rival consulting and finance because you know, consulting environments is part of for the business of health. In terms of other innovations that I've seen, you know, there's a lot of talk about lifetime learning and there always has been, but no one has ever really totally figured out how to make that work. But I think that schools that have amassed a lot of video content for their online programs could very easily put all of that content online for free for their alums. And while they bring their alums into this free exclusive area, they can sell their alums other things, including more traditional educational, executive education programs, including certificates, and including, you know, topical lectures by professors uh, on things that managers are dealing with today. You know, if you look at the internet, more than half of the information on the internet is either false or misinformation. Yet the ties that we have to our universities, we we trust our universities. We're loyal to them. So I think there's a lot of room for alums to have a place to go to get reliable, factual information that isn't biased. It's based on expert opinion and research and thoughtful people in the room, bringing that community together. And I think that there are certain schools that are trying to do this, put all of their video content that otherwise is only used in a class here and there, 
make it all available and make that as sort of the the cheese and the mouse trap to get alums to buy other things. I think that that's a really cool idea. Some schools are using the master in management as a way to get the specialty master's program. You know, in every specialty master's program, there's a core basic stuff that you deliver. What wouldn't be, wouldn't it be better to have a MIM that is so flexible that you could sell it to people who are interested in the business of health or, the, or sustainability or supply chain management. So you tack on three or four courses at the end to, to specialize in them. And then you have uh, a MIM that functions in a more flexible, more nimble way. The benefit of this for a school is that you don't overinvest in all these specialty master's programs because once you start something, it's really hard to get rid of it. In schools that started things like cybersecurity master's degrees and blockchain master's degrees found themselves stuck with programs that, that could only attract a handful of people, but faculty who wouldn't let go of them. So much better to have a more nimble uh, model like that. A lot of the innovation, I think, is occurring at schools that, yeah, like the University of Illinois, I just got to make a mention here. Look, what has been done at that school, at the Gies College of Business, is remarkable. Uh, you can take issue with the fact that, you know, they're running internet live classes with as many as a thousand students, and how effective can that be? On the other hand, they've disruptively priced their high-quality degree at under $25,000 for the MBA. But more importantly, what they've done is they've done what everyone has been talking about in, in higher education for over a decade, but very few people have done. They've decoupled degrees and courses so that you can take one course or you can take a series of courses and gain a certificate. But not merely a certificate, you can gain a credit-bearing certificate that you can then apply for a full degree. So you're creating pathways to degree programs, specialized and the MBA itself, by doing this. Many universities don't want schools of any kind to create credit-bearing certificates. Sure, people have certificates because that's easy to do, but so does LinkedIn and Google. Schools need to need their competitive advantage, their degree-granting status, their ability to grant academic credit to compete with Google, LinkedIn, Apple, and everyone else who's coming into this field of education. And the schools that decouple these courses and give credit for them, and the schools that put them together in little packages to teach someone how to do digital marketing or whatever, at the end of the day, I think that's going to be the model and that's going to win because people want education that's on demand. The world is changing rapidly. So are the needs and demands on managers and leaders in business. You know, you get a promotion and now you can't go off for the five-week course on, on a college campus for an advanced management degree or something like that if you don't have an MBA, or suddenly you were in finance and now you're exposed to other disciplines, or you lack business analytical skills to help you make a more informed decision based on data, or you have no idea at all about what you should be doing in diversity, equity, and inclusion, or sustainability. 
you need on-demand education from experts. The schools that are able to provide that, provide it quickly and flexibly, will be, I think, the schools at the end of the day are going to win. And I will say the University of Illinois is breaking these barriers in ways that are really unheard of in higher education across the board and at price points that are shocking. You know, I I love what you're saying. It's so fascinating. I think that I always was worried that the European model of the MBA, which is a one-year model, would be something that would start to hit the American market. And then I thought, well, okay, the only way that the, the secondary and tertiary schools were going to go to a one-year MBA was if one of the top five schools went to a one-year because everybody's a lemming and as soon as one guy does a one-year MBA from the top, everybody's going to follow that. Didn't happen that way. No. And But it's so interesting that you're talking about these innovators like Illinois. So as kind of our final question to you, rankings help me as a dean, your rankings help me as a dean to go look at innovative programs and say, this is what they're doing. This is pretty cool. I wonder how we can adapt that at my school. And so in actuality, you're sitting in a position where you really can show these universities that are in a quandary. And so many of them are because they just don't, they want to tweak. Like you said, I'm going to tweak this little piece or this little piece. That ain't going to work. You got to no. get innovative. And you're right. Illinois absolutely broke that barrier. They really knocked it out of the park. You know, how do you get rankings the way you guys do them, the traditional way of doing rankings. How do you get rankings to really tell this community about the innovators and then to say, if you're going to differentiate yourself, which we all know is hard to do. I mean, we all teach net present value, discounted cash flow, and the four P's of marketing. How do we differentiate? How do we differentiate our program from Illinois or somebody else to make us stand out, to make John Byrne, write about us in Poets and Quants so that everybody <laughs> understands that. So there's my final question to you. <laughs> okay, I don't I don't need to write about any school for him to find out about you, but let me just say this. <laughs> there are two there are two elements to, to competition in the business education market that are that have often been overlooked. And they're really simple things location and alumni success. Okay, so yes. yeah, yeah, you can talk, oh, we're going to bring our GMATs up by buying high GMAT students with scholarships. And we're going to play the U.S. Uh, news ranking game by, you know, making sure we hit all the metrics that they're measuring. But, but the truth is, for a second or third tier school, it's to play up uh, their location with their local businesses and local business leaders and to get very tied into their communities to have local advisory boards to embrace the business community. And if it's mid, mid-sized, private, privately owned family businesses, that's what it is, if that's what you have. Or, or if it's offices of the big well-known companies that are publicly traded, that's what it is, or the big service firms. But using your location smartly and, and making strong and deep ties to the community and, and serving the community in some way, maybe helping small business, helping these other businesses succeed, survive, and creating, helping to create an ecosystem for startups and, and successful entrepreneurs. I think that is a core element of uh, any strategy for second or third tier business school. Second piece of this is alumni success. And what I mean by that is, 
is really communicating to your community, your constituents, your stakeholders, that your degree matters, that people have been able to use it to leverage their lives in ways that, that has enhanced their lives and made them successful. Because in those alumni stories, people will read them and identify with your school and will think that your school offers a value proposition that's worthwhile. Those are the two most important things. Now, you could, of course, you want to have flexible programming so you can meet the needs of your market. You, you probably want a portfolio program. But in many cases, if you're a small school, it's going to, you're going to be suboptimal. So you got to figure out, you know, what do you want to focus on? This is like core business strategy stuff. You got to focus. You got to figure out your priorities and what are your core competencies based on your faculty and your your success to date. It's that's what really counts. Now, as for rankings, let me just say, you know, I often feel like Dr. Frankenstein. I created this thing in a laboratory. It got out of the laboratory and now it wrecks havoc all over the world. It's like Financial Times, it's the US News, it was Forbes, it's Fortune, it's, you know, it had been The Economist, as he said, uh, you know, it's just like, it's out of control. It's totally out of control. Okay. And much of it is schlock. It's, it's intellectually dishonest. There, every single ranking is flawed, including anything I do. You can't measure intangible yeah, things. I agree. I agree. And, you know, as much as, as a first-generation college student graduate, what I hate about the rankings, and this may come as a surprise, is that they reward exclusivity and they reward premium-priced education at the expense of inclusivity and accessibility. Yeah, good point. You know, and I'm and I'm trying to think, okay, what can we do to make it clear that there are quality players who are offering great education at affordable prices with acceptance rates that are somewhat selective, but not so selective that you know, you're rejecting really high quality people. I mean, generally, when you look at these elite MBA programs, you could argue that 80% of the applicant pool is qualified to attend, do well, graduate, and have successful careers. And yet only 20% or less of the students or the applicants are being accepted. I'd like to reward the schools that are letting in half of their students, at least, and actually have tuition rates that won't make you incur uh, six-figure debt and yet would give you a great education, a great start to your career. Yeah. And what rankings do is they diminish those possibilities, which is a problem. And then what's measured, you know, does it really matter? Uh, to some degree, yes. I mean, I guess it matters if a school obviously can get you jobs at graduation three months later. I think that certainly matters. Starting compensation, because there's so many factors in that number, it's it's really, you're comparing apples and oranges, right? Because it's solely based on career choice and geography to some degree. Sure, brand reputation matters, but it may not matter in the grand scheme of things as much as 
how many kids you're you funneling into consulting and investment banking versus healthcare, NGOs, media and entertainment, manufacturing, real estate, jobs that don't pay nearly as much as the $190,000 to start at McKinsey Bain BCG with a $35,000 starting bonus. So even the compensation metric is a little wacky. And then when you, you think about measuring acceptance rates and GMAT scores, you know, you're, you're basically creating a, a market mechanism for schools to funnel their scholarship aid to high GMAT earning applicants instead of applicants with a more holistic review that is done by business schools in a way that would really be benefit the school and the program long term. And what you can't measure is the most important, which is what is really the academic experience? What's the educational experience of the students going through that program? And what are they really gaining intellectually and emotionally? And you can't measure that, but that's the most important thing to measure. And that's where rankings completely fail. Now, the good thing about rankings, and I know a lot of people take issue with this when I say this, but here's one of the reasons why the MBA remains the most popular graduate degree in America and the undergraduate business major is the most popular major in America, I believe is because of rankings. Why? Because every year you have major media outlets pounding you with these lists. And it's not necessarily about who's number five and who's number 12 and who's number 18. What is going on here is you have a business week, you have a fortune, you have an economist, you have a financial times reminding you of how important business education is to success in business. And I think that reinforcement year after year after year in the stories that follow it convince a lot of people that this is, this is a necessary ingredient for me to be successful in business. And I think that has led a lot of people to consider business education who otherwise would not have. So that's the benefit of ranking is the, and the negative is what, what I said, it rewards exclusivity and, and high prices over inclusivity and uh, accessibility and, and focuses on metrics that create artificial distortions in the market. That's a problem. But, you know, the people who consume rankings don't look at the footnotes don't look at the index numbers that show no statistically meaningful difference between a school ranked 10 and a school ranked 15. They just look at the number and say, oh, this is the number. It's just, you know, it's mindless, as mindless as the journalists who create these things. <laughs> it's the mindless use of the consumer <laughs> who uses them. <laughs> well, John, we could uh, think of no one who could speak with such mindfulness about the value and the purpose of business education sort of across the landscape. Really a terrific conversation. Thank you so much for joining us here today. No, and, and I want to thank the three of you for doing something that is needed because, you know, being a dean is a lonely job, okay? It's like being a CEO. You, you don't have a whole lot of people to talk to because everyone has everyone is motivated by their self-interest. Right. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to just get good advice and hear what other people are doing. So to the extent that you're, you know, revealing best practices, the extent that you're, you're creating a community where people can share ideas and perspectives, 
that is extremely valuable. So my hat goes off to you guys. Well, thank you. Really appreciate it. Happy holidays. Thanks, John, so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Yeah, great. Thank you. So what do you think, Ken? Well, as anticipated, that was really, we could have, we could have gone on. Remarkable. I mean, his whole history, but really appreciation across the landscape. And that's, I thought, what was most compelling was that, you know, he can talk about business education as a as a contribution to humanity in a way that is both meaningful, but with real credibility. And so analytical and so very much factual in terms of his thought process. You know, I, I think back to so many programs that were kind of put in as Me Too's and they, they never got out of being a Me Too. And I think his, he really points out some very important things that, that today's business school deans need to listen to and, and are going to benefit from. So I couldn't have been more pleased to listen to him and his analysis of what's going on in that, in that environment. I mean, one thing I picked up, which I thought was couldn't have anticipated, was you know his ability to unpack rankings in a way that wasn't either defensive or you know from the perspective of you know, the how-to in rankings was really really important to hear. Yeah, his objectivity is spectacular, totally objective, even in his own career and his own business. Yeah. So I, I just couldn't have appreciated it more. It really was wonderful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, Please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show. 